This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business, I have a special guest. His name is Dr. Robert Johnson. He is currently the president of the American College of Finance. In his previous job, he was a senior person at the CFA Institute, where he pretty much was in charge of the Chartered Financial Analyst Test. You can only take one part per year, pass part one, and you have to wait a year to pass part two, and then ultimately take the third part in the third year. It has about a 50% fail rate, and a lot of people look at it as a um, really a the most challenging exam they'll ever encounter in their career in finance. Uh, we discuss all sorts of things, everything from the value of value investing to the impact of the Fed on the investment process. Uh, if you are at all interested in how people become certified to actually be CFAs and, and what the value of those, those letters are, to either a company or an investment bank or or an analyst, uh, I think you'll find this conversation quite interesting. Uh, Bob is really an interesting guy to talk to. He's very knowledgeable about a lot of areas, tells some great stories about Warren Buffett. Uh, one of the books he wrote, uh, which is called Strategic Value Investing, is on Buffett's reading list every year at Berkshire Hathaway's annual Fest. They have a list of suggested books. His book has been on that list for quite some time. Anyway, I, I found him to be just a, a genuine, fascinating, interesting guy, and I think you'll enjoy the conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with Dr. Robert Johnson. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Dr. Robert Johnson. Let me just give you the short version of his curriculum vitae. He is currently president and CEO at the American College of Financial Services. Uh, he has been the recipient of the Alfred C. Morley Distinguished Service Award when he was one of the senior folks at the CFA Institute. He has won the RFK Memorial Student Award for Teaching Achievement, uh, serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Portfolio management. He really helped to develop and refine the chartered financial analyst test. We'll get to that later today. He is the author of numerous books, including Invest with the Fed, Strategic Value Investing, and Tools and Techniques of Investment Planning. Dr. Robert Johnson, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. It's terrific to be here. Uh, I'm thrilled to have you. We met previously on Tom Keen's show, and I found it fascinating what a unique niche in the world of finance that you occupy, sort of one foot in the world of academia and one foot in the world of actually helping um, people become chartered financial analysts. So so let's talk a little bit about your background. When people, when you first meet people and they say, hey, Bob, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that question? Barry, I tell them I'm a pracademic. A pracademic. And that's the word that I hope sometime comes in the lexicon, the popular lexicon. I hope it's in Wikipedia someday, maybe even in Webster's. But basically, a pracademic is somebody who operates both in the world of the practitioner and in the world of academia. And unfortunately, I don't think that those 
circles, if you look at it in a Venn diagram sense, intersect very often. And I think that if we had more of that, I think both worlds would benefit. So that's that's fascinating. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was, you've sort of gone back and forth between being a practitioner and being an academic. How does one make that transition in either direction? How do you go from a practitioner to an academic and vice versa? Well, I, I think if you stay close to the edge of each, that it isn't much of a transition. When I was a, a finance professor at Creighton University, I also ran a money management firm. I mm -hmm. had about $50 million under management of private wealth. And I was a much better teacher because I was actually managing money. And I think the same is true in reverse. I think that folks who practice, if they look at the best in academia, can benefit uh, greatly. So I, I, I really don't think it's a tough transition if you, if you kind of stay close to the edge. Unfortunately, I think people uh, want to operate in the center of those circles instead of where they overlap. You know, we use so much academic research in our regular practice, whether it's the behavioral side as to how people misbehave or just classic um, portfolio management theory. There's a lot of things to be learned from people who are spending lots of time just doing deep thought. You mentioned you were running a, a relatively small asset management business, but you've also been an outside director on some fairly substantial um, multi-billion dollar uh, management firms. What does the academic bring to a 20 plus billion dollar fund? And how does that help you? Uh, how does being on a, a huge $20 billion fund board help you uh, as an educator? Well, I think it's discipline and rigor that that the academic can bring to the uh, to, to the asset manager. And I think it's the best of academic research. Uh, for instance, one of the things we looked at when I was, uh, was on the, the funds board that I was on was executive compensation. Well, mm -hmm. I happen to have done my dissertation in executive compensation. And uh, basically what my research showed was that incentive stock options changed the way people worked. So I think when you bring some empirical evidence to the table – that it no longer is just anecdotal, that I think it really brings it to light and people can see that there's substantive research behind a lot of the findings. So not just a story, but actual data that, that underlines it. Let, as long as you brought it up, let's talk a little bit about executive compensation. My concern about stock options are that you're paying people for based how well the stock market does as opposed to how much they've improved the underlying company. True or false? True. The delta, what, what you really would like to measure is the delta, how much, how much that particular executive changed the way that company operated. And too often, they're just paid for a, a, a tailwind. The market goes up, the sector goes up, and your company within that sector is going to participate in both of those. Whether you're great or terrible, there's going to be some overlap there. Exactly. And there's no pure element. It's, it's, it's so difficult to disentangle the effects. So let's talk about another rising tide. In, in the last minute and a half we have in the segment, you wrote the role of monetary policy in investment management. Uh, said differently, I was always taught, don't fight the Fed. What is the proper role of monetary policy in investment management? The curious thing is that when you say don't fight the Fed, um, 
when I started that line of research, I was an asset manager, mm-hmm. and I noticed, and this is in the late 80s, so remember in the late 80s, the, the people in the industry didn't know who the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board right, was. Right. People didn't know people didn't know what the Fed was. Now it's front page news. Mm-hmm. So if you put yourself back in there, I noticed that when the Fed changed policy, it influenced asset prices. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to rigorously study that and empirically study that. And lo and behold, I started these studies in the early 90s. And the culmination actually was the book Invest with the Fed that was recently just published by McGraw-Hill. We're going to get to that in a little while. That's on my list of things to chat about. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Dr. Robert Johnson. He is the president of the American College of Financial Services. Before that, he was a very senior person at the CFA Institute where he had a lot to do with the Chartered Financial Analyst Test, uh, the CFA exam levels one, two, and three, as it's known and hated. Let's talk a little bit about the Institute first. What exactly is the CFA Institute? CFA Institute is uh, basically two things. The CFA Institute is the organization that writes and administers the CFA exams. And CFA Institute is also a membership organization. To maintain the CFA charter, one needs to be a member of CFA Institute. So it's a membership organization. I believe the numbers now are probably about 150,000 people that worldwide. That many? Yeah. So there's 150,000 CFAs well, out there in the world. You can be a member of CFA Institute without being a CFA. Very few are. The lion's share of people are CFA charter holders, are CFA candidates. Some CFA candidates so are members. So safe to say 100,000 people have gone through all three exams, passed all three exams? Well, I think right? I think it's probably more than that because the exam started in 63, so some of those folks have died. So mm-hmm. I think that you've probably got over still living, still 000. working, right? Uh, somewhere between a hundred and probably, I'd say a hundred and a quarter. And um, what were your what was your role at the CFA Institute? You've had a number of positions within the institute. It's funny, Barry. I uh, I'm laughing because I was at Creighton University. I was a tenured full professor of finance. Last of the landed gentry in America, and, tenured professor. And CFA Institute came calling and said that they would like me to come and work on the curriculum. So I took a two-year leave of absence in 1996, and I was hired to, to, uh, to uh, run the curriculum development process. Um, to, about almost two years into the process, I was promoted to being head of the CFA program. The Which whole, is the, the actual exam. The whole thing, the curriculum, exams, administering the exams, standard setting the exams, the whole thing. So I uh, resigned tenure at CFA Inst- uh, at uh, Creighton University and stayed on at CFA Institute. A few years later, um, I was promoted to being in charge of all educational products. They do, CFA does some other educational. They have the certificate and investment performance measurement. Um, They run the financial analyst journal, um, a lot of professional publications, conferences, and so forth. So I was in charge of all of those. Um, Later on, I was promoted to being deputy CEO, um, basically second in command at CFA Institute, and managed the lion's share of the organization reported up through to me at that time. So, uh, And I I ended up leaving in 2011, so I was there uh, 15 years. Mm -hmm. Your your bio says that you have, quote, extensive experience with the credentialing programs, unquote. 
Now, in English, what exactly does that mean? Well, there's a profession that's known as psychometrics. And it, these are people who have PhDs in measurement and testing. Uh-huh. This is the science of testing and the science of determining who has indeed passed an examination. So what I did when I was at CFA Institute was I knew we were good at finance and we were good at investments, but I was convinced we really weren't very good at developing curriculum that was great for the distance learner. And I certainly didn't think we knew how to write exam questions like someone who studied that for a living did. So I brought psychometricians into the process. And basically what I, what I believe happened is we professionalized the process of writing the exams, developing the curriculum, and so forth. I, I love that expression, the, the distance learner, the person who's not just memorizing something temporarily, but learning it for the long haul. That's well, and the other thing, Barry, with the CFA program was the lion's share of the candidates now are from outside of North America, many, for many of whom English is a second language. Right. So you have to take that into account when writing the curricular materials and writing the exams. And that's a big factor now. Um, you know, just, that's just nomenclature and, and just common terminology. No shorthand, no colloquialisms. It has to be the the queen's tongue, so to speak. Right. Or- you, you have to think about the person in, in Thailand or in Cambodia or in, uh, in Kenya who's studying this who isn't familiar with colloquial right. English. Huh. That's, that's really never thought about that before. That's quite interesting. So the CFA exam has a reputation for being a, a killer, especially um, two of the levels are known as being notoriously hard. The fail rate is fairly high. What What is the fail rate on the C- each CFA level? Gosh, now I believe the fail rate on level one is about 60%. The fail rate more, on- More than half. Right. The fail rate on level two is, I believe, Better. more than half, but uh-huh. still more than half. The failure rate on level three is less than Yeah, that's 50%. a cakewalk level three. You just, yeah. you know, you don't even have to study. Now, the you inter- just walk right through that. It's only like a 48% fail rate. You, ba- are, you could cram in like an hour. Barry, every year I used to get letters and phone calls when I was in charge oh, of the wow. CFA program. And people said, well, you must have some mistake. I got a letter that said I failed the exam. <laughs> there must be some mistake there. I have a degree from... Name fill your, in the blank. Fill in yeah. your blank, Ivy League University. Right. I've never failed any exam in my life. Right. And uh, something is wrong with you folks. So, doesn't the CFA Institute know about the gentleman C? And uh, <laughs> the interesting thing there is that I, my response, and I didn't respond in these terms, but um, I, I did it in a much nicer way than this, but I used to say, you know, this is a meritocracy. We don't know who you are. We don't know your lineage. It's how you do on that exam. And we it means have, that 48% of the candidates did better than you. And, That's we have, in the- and, you know, we had people from community colleges that were passing the exam. And I used to say, you know, I think you might want to write your letter to your alma mater instead of us. <laughs> They're the ones that failed you. So in the last minute or so we have left, what does this credentialing do for investors, what does it do for corporate clients and what does it do for investment banks? I think it really ups people's game. And when somebody is hiring a CFA charter holder around the world, and this is the same whether you're in, um, you know, 
Lagos, Nigeria, or Miami, Florida, you've gone through the same exam. If you have the letter CFA behind your name, it means the same thing, and you've attained that 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 level. And I think that employers know that you're really getting someone who not only has mastered a body of knowledge, but really had the discipline to go through it, because it's an arduous process, as you said. In fact, um, most of the successful people failed at least one of those exams. And it's tough when those exams are only given, well, level two and three are only given once a year. So you really got to buckle down and say, now I got to redo this all over and do even more work than I did last time. And I think it's a signal to uh, the, to investors, to clients, that th- these are these folks are bit really best of breed. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dr. Robert Johnson. He is the head of the American College of Financial Services. He used to run the entire CFA Institute Chartered Financial Analyst Testing Program and the Curriculum Program and is extremely knowledgeable about all things CFA-related. Let's talk about a book you wrote way back when called the tools and techniques of investment planning. What what motivated you to to pen a book of such a title? Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I wanted to. I have uh, had a relationship, a professional relationship, with the individual that I wrote it with, and it was an excuse for us to uh, stay together. He worked with me at CFA Institute, and uh, it was an opportunity to continue working with him. His name's Tom Robinson. Tom is now the president and CEO of AACSB International, the uh, accredi- the accre- AACSB, the accrediting agency that does uh, collegiate schools of business. Oh, really? Yeah. Collegiate schools of business. So anybody who wants to, my alma mater is Stony Brook. They added a school of business recently. They had to jump through his hoops. They have to jump through those hoops. Recently, 15 years ago, recently. Um, that's interesting. I didn't even know such a thing. I assumed it existed. I never knew what the acronym uh, was so. Let's talk a little bit about the the details of that. What should clients expect from their relationship with their financial advisor? They should expect that that financial advisor is acting in their best interest. And unfortunately, what we have now is that the landscape, I believe, is that we have what you would refer to Barry as a financial services industry mm-hmm. and not a financial services profession. For sure. And I think you're a profession if you have three qualities, and those three qualities are knowledge, the the second is that you have some experience, and the third thing that makes you a professional is that you aspire to a code of ethics. And whether you're a doctor, whether you're a lawyer or an architect, whatever your profession, a profession has to have those three elements. And I think that's why, unfortunately, the financial services it, it, financial services is referred to as an industry instead of a profession. And one of the things we want to do at the American College that CFA Institute is doing in the investment management realm in financial planning is we want to make financial services a profession. That's what we aspire to do. So I'm on the same side of the boat as you. I think we should have a fiduciary standard. I think the best interests of the client should be paramount. But let me, however, briefly take the other side of the argument. This is what in the we just finished a fairly robust debate about the fiduciary standard on retirement accounts. Uh, I argued against people who said we shouldn't do that. I said there's no reason we shouldn't. But let me push back and and here's the argument 
that they said, well, if we're on the brokerage side, we have our own uh, ethical code that we're obligated to be maintain a certain level of ethical standard. We may not have a fiduciary obligation, but we certainly have to know our clients and have uh, only offer them suitable investments. And if we engage in any behavior uh, that transgresses from that, we could be penalized or or fired from the industry. What's what's wrong from with that argument? I think suitability buries a pretty low hurdle, to say the least. But yeah. I, I'm trying really hard to take yeah. that side of the case. It's not easy. I don't think I really don't think there's a lot of people that oppose the 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 statement that that people in the financial services and I'll say profession here mm-hmm. should act as a fiduciary. I don't think there are many people that argue with that. Where people are arguing is this fiduciary standard. Mm-hmm. And that it that it is fairly nebulous. For instance, reasonable fees. Well, define what reasonable fees are. Define how much somebody needs to know in terms of fulfilling that fiduciary standard. So let's separate that fact that we all agree that people should be a fiduciary with the fact that, of course, the devil's in the details. Well, there are such things as best practices. You can look at average costs, and there's always a gray line. Well, if the average is, I'm going to use a fat round number, if the average is 1% and you think you're doing something special and you're charging one and a quarter and one and a half percent, I, I don't think anyone's going to argue that that is usurious. On the other hand, when we see 9% and 14% and really multiples of an average 1%, that, that's a pretty bright line variation. So where it gets a little challenging is, okay, 1% is, is standard. One and a quarter is a little high, but it's not ridiculous. One and a half, especially for smaller accounts. The question becomes, shouldn't it simply be what's in the best interest of the client? Hey, here's our fee structure. We're transparent. We're going to disclose our fees. It's all out in the open. There's no conflicts. Nobody else is paying us uh, under the table. It's all here in front of you. It should be fairly easy to make the interest of the client's uh, that that shouldn't be a challenging standard, best interest or, or fiduciary, should it? it? I think the worry is after the fact, how are you going to judge best interest? And let me give you just a, 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 an idea of what I mean. Most of the studies out there, and you know this, most of the studies out there show that active managers underperform the indexes over the long haul, mm-hmm. right? So if you take the fiduciary standard, and I know that it's not going to be taken to the limit, but if you take the fiduciary standard to the limit, gosh, isn't the best interest to put people in index funds that are virtually no cost now because index funds, the cost has gone to zero, and the wealth of the evidence shows that at most active managers fail to beat I think, Listen, I, that's how I manage money, but that's not what necessarily what everybody wants. Some people... If someone says to me, look, I, I would be bored with that, and I wouldn't be able to stay with that, so I need something it's with American, jazz right? just to keep me interested, <laughs> you could talk till you're blue in the face to that person. I could say, look, all the academic data says, overwhelmingly, your best bet is low-cost, broadly diversified, global indices. You rebalance it regularly. See you next year. Right. Uh, investing should be boring. If a person says to me, 
I can't do that. That would bore me out of my mind. And I know in six months I'd be on to the next advisor. Well, me personally, I would say, well, let me save you the six months and go find another advisor now. And we'll we'll just say, hey, this isn't a great fit. But what about the advisor who understands that this guy needs a little excitement in his life and, and Sunday night football doesn't get it done for him and understands the risk he's taking it's weird for me to make this argument because I don't believe any of it, but he understands the risk he's taking in order to try and capture alpha that he might actually forego beta, but he needs some of his portfolio. Here, we'll take 10%. We'll put you in this high-octane slug, and maybe that'll keep you focused on this uh, so we could let the bulk of your part portfolio do what it's supposed to do. If a client understands and wants that, is it in his best interest to give him the medicine that he doesn't want, isn't going to take, and is going to move on. At a certain point, doesn't the behavior of the investor become a question? Oh, I wouldn't force it on anybody. But what I'm saying is the lay investor that comes to the advisor, I mean, the default to me would be indexing, given the evidence. Makes sense to me. Under the fiduciary standard. Yep. So I, I just think that the devil's in the details. And, and after the fact, if somebody put an investor in active funds that underperformed, is that active manager going to be, is that is that person going to be liable? And I don't know that we know that yet. I, I don't think we could say after the fact that if you went active because the client requested it, and we know 60% of active managers don't hit their benchmark. Look, we could look at it over a decade. Once you're taking cost fees, taxes, yeah, almost nobody outperforms the indexes over a decade. No, but I'm even saying the investor that comes, the lay investor that comes and doesn't have a predisposition toward active or passive, and the, the advisor puts them in active. Why did this investor go to this advisor? There, there are a lot of questions. Look, uh, the way, so let me, I try not to talk about my practice on the air because it's too easy to just digress, but we set stuff up so that there's a three-step process. And step one is, hey, are we a good fit for you? When we have a client contact or a prospective client contact us, and the first thing he's doing is, what's your sharp ratio? How much drawdown can I expect? How much should I expect to outperform the market? Uh, you know, that, those are red flags that let us, force us to say, listen, let, we appreciate your interest. Let us explain what we do. Yeah. And based on what you're describing, we're not sure you're a good fit, but here's what we do, global, low-cost index, blah, blah, blah. But you are looking for a little more juice. Now, let's figure out what you really want, need, when are you going to retire, when are you going to draw down, kids in college, blah, blah, blah. And when we get to how the money is deployed, if you want to have a slug, if you want to have a sleeve of your money in a really sexy, high-octane, shoot the lights out when the times are good, but get shellacked when the times are bad sort of sleeve. We work with other um, third-party managers. There's somebody who I know offers that. There's a handful of people who are great at it. But we don't think that's the best thing for you over the long haul. We right. think over the long haul, hey, the market's going to give you a certain amount with the lowest cost, the lowest amount of risk, the lowest turnover, the lowest taxes, blah, 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 blah. So sometimes you have to look at a client who... I swear this is true. I tell this to people and nobody believes me. I got an email about five years ago from somebody who who send, says to me, um, I, I just inherited a big slug of money and I want to give half a million dollars to five advisors. And whoever does the best, 
I'm going to give $10 million to. That's the money behind it. And what was the best over what time period? Uh, over a year. Oh, yeah. So, so I wrote him back and said, thank you, but no thanks. But before you dismiss my dismissing of your offer, let me explain to you what you just did. You just created created um, a game theory agency issue where you've incentivized five managers. They know the odds are only one in five that you're gonna they're gonna win. So you've incented them to swing for the fences. Right. And if they lose, well, I got a year fees out of this guy. And if they win, you can't tell the difference between luck, luck or repeatable skill. process. Yeah. So no matter what, you just wasted a quarter, $250 million, and heaven forbid you give money to the guy who did the best, and it has nothing to do with how he should manage your $10 million. The question you should be asking are, is, what do I want to use this money for? Money is a tool. How best can I do that with the least amount of risk to myself and my family, and where do what is this going to do for me over the next 20, 40, 60 years and beyond? Not who's going to shoot the lights out so I have bragging rights at a cocktail party. Right. But nobody, you know, so I never heard from that guy again, and I swear that was the email. I don't remember if it was a million a person or half a million. Whatever it was, it was some idiotic thing. When we look at the right way to manage money for clients, is that really that person what that person wants or what that person needs is is should be paramount sure so so that's the question um and i didn't mean to go on a massive digression in the last minute we have in this section let me ask one short question what is it that the industry is doing right and and what's its biggest flaw i think that the biggest flaw is that the industry doesn't encourage enough people to invest enough. And I don't mean invest a large amount of money. I mean invest. People want to speculate. You talked about that. We're in an era of 24-7 people can check their account balances. We have people that are constantly monitoring what they're doing. Tick and, by tick. And people want this action. You know, it used to be Barry, when I was back when I was teaching at Creighton, I used to record on VHS tape, so that's how long ago it was, Wall Street Week with Louis sure. Werkheiser. We've gone from Wall Street Week now to Jim Cramer screaming mad money. I heard something the other day on one of the 24 7 um, uh, business, fin, fin business TVs, networks yep. that was really interesting. There was a debate. Uh, between two folks on a particular stock, and they said, well, let's let's figure out over the long term. We'll come back over the long term and figure out who's right. And they said, yeah, we'll come back in six months. <laughs> so six months has become the long term. I think that that is – the industry, I, I believe, is not doing enough to promote investing and is, you know, looking at at speculating. It's funny because over the course of my career, my holding periods have gone from minutes to months to years to decades. I started out as a trader, and if you had to hold something for 20 minutes, it was a long time. And then it slowly moved to long, long term being defined as six months to a year, and now long term is decades. So I kind of did a full 180 from my early days, but I see everybody else going the opposite direction. Yeah. The holding periods are getting shorter. Not talking about HFTs or the guys who are holding things 
for a nanosecond, I mean actual right. investors and traders. Is that your perception of this as well? It is. Um, you know, I think the, the other thing that I think the industry is doing wrong is that they're, they tend to take something that's pretty inherently simple. Investing is really inherently simple and making it very complex. I think investment bankers are wonderful for that. They always kind of stay one step ahead of folks in terms of making something incredibly complex that's pretty simple. Think about what happened in the mortgage crisis. Something hey, there's, that, there's a lot of money in complexity. There is money in complexity. And I think one of the things a financial advisor should do for folks is that trusted advisor should be able to cut through the complexity and go the other way. Take something that's complex and make it simple. That makes when, a whole lot of sense. When I was managing money, that's what I said 85% of what I did was counseling. Mm-hmm. We see. Counseling and teaching. That's very, very, sounds very familiar. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dr. Robert Johnson. He is the president of the American College of Financial Services. He's a former uh, head of the curriculum and testing at the CFA Institute, author of a number of books. Let's talk about um, a, a couple of books you wrote that I think are, are really interesting. What is it that strategic value investing is, and how does that differ from just good old value investing? Well, the first thing I have to do is put a plug in for the book. Okay. And I, I thought this whole segment was- Last week, I found out that um, my uh, idol in mm-hmm. the business, Mr. Buffett, growing up in Omaha, Nebraska, how can you not look, sure. to, look up to Warren Buffett? Mr. Buffett has put strategic value investing on his annual reading list for the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. Oh, my goodness. That's fantastic. That's very exciting. There are about three dozen books. I Mm -hmm. will be in Omaha signing books along at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. And again, for somebody who grew up in Omaha, Nebraska... That is about the pinnacle of uh, a career in uh, investments. You, so someone from Berkshire reached out to you and said, we want you at the annual meeting and come sign books and will you get a chance to meet? There's, he works with a bookstore in Omaha mm-hmm. and the bookstore puts a list out of books that they believe should be on the list. And uh, my, how my book showed up on there, I didn't know, but- one of our PR people called the uh, Omaha bookstore that does this, the Bookworm is the uh-huh. name of the book. And they said that a, an email came from Mr. Buffett personally to say, I want to put this book on the list. No kidding. So, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've been on cloud nine cents. But strategic, That's exciting. Yeah. Strategic value investing is simply, there are various schools of thought in value investing. It started with Ben Graham, of course. Uh, the father of value investing. But in strategic value investing, we look at several definitions of value investing, whether that be the traditional Graham and Dodd, we look at residual income, we look at asset-based approaches, we look at a lot of different approaches uh, to value investing. And what we believe is that gives the reader the opportunity to kind of figure out where their proclivity is, what kind of style they may want to develop, because you know, value investing is a discipline. Um, name your value investor: uh, Wally White's, uh, Warren Buffett, sure. uh, John Neff. They all have a little bit of a different variations on a theme. So I think that a, a book that describes all those different variations and shows them to people and kind of cuts through a lot of what they do, I think, helps people develop their own style. Huh. That's quite interesting. So. 
let's keep let's keep plowing our way through. So you're saying that your version of strategic value investing, it's based on traditional value investing. You're just looking at certain variations on yeah, that theme. The different variations on the theme. So let's talk about another book of yours, Invest with the Fed, that came out yeah. fairly recently. Um, what does that mean? And, and this goes back to the old uh, Marty Zweig comment, don't fight the Fed. Yeah, the other Marty Zweig quote that I love is he said, money makes the mare go, if you look at it as in, in terms of horse racing. Basically, what we show in the book, and my co-authors are uh, Jerry Jensen of Creighton University and Luis Garcia Fiejo of Florida Atlantic University, and once again, this was an excuse to keep working with former colleagues. Uh, both of those individuals worked with me on the, on the CFA program. But basically what we did was we, in a very rigorous empirical sense, looked at Fed policy and how different capital markets perform, stocks, bonds, commodities, real estate, and so forth. And just to give you a little flavor – when the Fed was being expansive with monetary policy, the S&P on average returned 15.2%. When the Fed was being restrictive, the market returned, the S&P returned about 5.9%. And this was over a long time period, a 40 That's a 10%. That's a giant giant difference. And it's even and that was over a time period from 66 through 2013. But it's even bigger than that, Barry, because if you factor in inflation, and inflation is higher in a restrictive environment than in an expansive environment, real returns were about 12% different. So there's something going on there. It's something that you can't ignore. Now, is that correlation relative to the fact that when the Fed is cutting, it usually means that you've just had a huge revaluation in markets and you're, you're getting to buy when things are fairly cheap? Or does it mean something else? Well, what I think it means is that um, the Fed both reacts to and leads markets. Um, we're not saying that one causes the other. We're not mm -hmm. saying that the Fed policy causes these returns. We're simply saying that there's this correlation and that it's something that's so dominant that you can't ignore it. And here's the other interesting thing we found. We found that commodities – the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index actually had a negative return during expansive time periods and a very high return during restrictive time periods. So you're not a big fan of commodities, I take it then? I'm not a big fan of commodities, but they are a great diversifier during restrictive time periods. And if you believe that we're moving into a restrictive time period, which I believe we are, um, I think that you may see uh, commodities perform pretty well in the, in the near term. But by the way, I've pulled up your uh, book on Amazon and looking at uh, some of the interesting comments here on Invest with the Fed. Five stars on Amazon, 40-plus reviews. That's actually really, really interesting. So it's not that the Fed is what's driving the markets necessarily – it's when the Fed is doing their cycle, when they're expansionary, something else is going on. When they're less expansionary, a different thing is going on. And you could parallel their behavior in order to most advantageously position your portfolio. Yeah, and what we look at, too, is, and I always say the following, are you a golfer, Barry? I am not. Well, there's a famous golf pro, uh, Harvey Penick, was uh, Ben Crenshaw's golf coach. Mm -hmm. And Harvey Penick had this saying that when you get a golf lesson— and you get a tip, take an aspirin, don't take the whole bottle. 
And what that means is that you don't over-exaggerate something. Mm -hmm. So with Invest with the Fed, what we suggest is that you may want to tilt your asset allocations a little bit with regard to Fed policy. That doesn't mean you sell out of equities completely and go to commodities when the Fed becomes restrictive. But for instance, we find when the Fed is restrictive that necessity goods uh, perform pretty well and Discre and uh, and non -discre or a and discretionary industries don't perform very well. So let's so break autos, that down. For instance, don't perform very well when the Fed is in a restrictive mode, but auto parts perform pretty well. Healthcare, food, basic medicines, hospitals that that's going to do well. People have to buy food and brush their teeth no matter right. what. If you break your leg, you go into the hospital. Right. It doesn't matter what what's going to happen. But you it's can delay that purchase of a new car. You can delay that purchase of a new suit. Um, during um, restrictive time periods. That that makes perfect sense. What else do we know about not fighting the Fed and, and investing with them? What else would you add to that conversation that, you know, I don't want to go chapter by chapter with the book, but I thought there were some interesting things in there. Yeah, one of the interesting things I think is that uh, real, estate, uh, uh, real estate performs pretty well when the Fed is in a restrictive period. You know, many people would think real estate doesn't perform, wouldn't perform Why? Because well. you're raising rates and making mortgages more expensive. Usually when the Fed is tightening, it means that you're later in the cycle and the economy is already heated up. Right. One would imagine that in, in yours to the benefit of res, certainly residential real estate and perhaps uh, commercial resident real estate as well. And of course, we're looking at real estate investment trust data because you can't get Right. Data on um, individual uh, residences. You can't. Well, what you can get is just so regional. You can't draw any specific uh, questions. So, so let's um, let's switch gears. I know you left uh, the CFA Institute in 2011. About that time, that's when the SEC published a study uh, that was mandated by Dodd Frank. That, that specifically recommended that advisors, whether you're working on retirement accounts or, or discretionary investments, whether you're uh, at a broker dealer or at a uh, registered investment advisory, all financial advice providers should be put under the fiduciary standard. Uh, but that ended up not happening. The SEC was deadlocked and couldn't agree with that. What are your thoughts on, on that fiduciary standard for everybody? Yeah, is it is it realistic? Are you going to be have people that are going to be able to qualify professionally to do that? That would be my response to that. Is for instance, we can we can set a very high bar that people have to get over, but are enough people going to be able to get over that bar to serve the public? One of the things that I have concern about with the current fiduciary standard is 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 it going to leave a middle market? that desperately needs financial advice? Is it going to leave it under cert? We've been speaking with Dr. Robert Johnson, president and CEO at the American College of Financial Services. Dr. Johnson, if people want to find your writings and your work, your, your books are obviously online. Where else can they read anything you've written? Well, you can go to www.theamericancollege.edu and see my profile and a link to some uh, of the, the writings that I've done. Well, define define middle market, uh, mom and pop, and uh, so with a few thousand dollars to put in in uh, in a mutual fund every once in a while. So, if you go back and look at what took place post crisis, we saw we saw Merrill Lynch tell brokers, "Hey, if you're going to have accounts under two hundred fifty thousand dollars, 
That's up to you, but we're not paying any commission on it. UBS, Morgan Stanley, a number of other firms have similar, but if not, but not identical restrictions. But there's really a discouraging of taking small accounts from the big firms because it's a huge volume and there's no money in it. So, and that's without the fiduciary right. standard. Yeah, the fiduciary standard is there really much of a change? If those clients aren't being served today anyway? See, I think we need to find a way to serve that market. And and that comes, I, I believe that that comes, Barry, through education. You know, the Obama administration has made this fiduciary standard a big part of what they want their legacy to be. Well, and and I don't think that the intent is wrong. I think the intent is 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 is, is, is very pure. But what I think is that the realization is, is that you're going to have this middle market that isn't going to be attractive, that isn't going to be profitable, be, be less served. And if you really want to make inroads into the retirement income crisis, which is arguably Huge. the biggest crisis in the country now. Charlie Ellis has been banging the drum on this for years now. Then somehow we have to encourage that market segment to be served and not discourage it. And I know that's not the intent of the fiduciary standard, but I think that's actually going to be the realization of the fiduciary standard. So the UK said, we don't care what standard you have. If you're managing retirement accounts, your fees are capped at 50 basis points. Is that a solution? I, I It's a possible solution, but I'd, I think that what you are going to see, hopefully, is that 10 years down the road, we're going to have seen some really creative and some really innovative people in the financial services industry come up with a solution on how to serve that market. But one of the things that we kept hearing in this fiduciary standard debates was the figure $17 billion. I'm yes. sure you know that that was what bad financial advice was costing Americans. Yes. Okay, how much was good financial advice making Americans? Well, we don't have to worry about good financial advice. It's doing good. We yeah. have to worry about bad financial advice. By the way, someone challenged me on that $17 billion number. They said, how, how on earth did you come up with 17 17- and the answer was, well, if you look in, in 401k, 403, not 403b, just 401k and IRAs, they were, I want to say it was somewhere between 15 and 20 trillion, some like huge, huge number. Assume that bad financial advice costs 1% of that. And let's assume that bad financial advice is only 10%, right? So the 17 trillion becomes... 170 billion, and then we're going to take a 1% drag on returns. That's how they got to the 17 billion. Now, I will tell you that bad financial advice is out to more than 10% of clients out there in the world. And even worse, it costs a whole lot more than 1%. I think they were being really kind. I think the number is closer to $50 billion. But that's just my back of the envelope calculation. The interesting thing too, though, to me, Barry, is that uh, if you really want to solve the retirement income crisis, one of the one of the uh, solutions that the Obama administration came up with was this my RA accounts. Yeah, and that kind of went nowhere. I was really surprised. I thought it was an interesting idea. But the only thing you could invest in was savings bonds. Makes that makes no sense. Well, see, that's my point: is that we want to encourage people to save, and we want to we we create this vehicle. That's sanctioned by the government. Right. Well, it must be a good thing. Well, you know as well as I do, if you have a thirty-year time horizon and you're investing in savings bonds, you're giving money away. You're giving a lot of money away. It's this goes back to 
a lack of appropriate understanding of of Congress's own role. Look, there's no people are willing to lend Uncle Sam money at absurdly low rates. Take advantage of that. Take all of this debt, which is financed with all the short-term paper, seventeen trillion, or now it's almost up to nineteen trillion. Take that debt, roll it into a fifty-year bond. There's people are dying for yield, dying for good paper. Roll it into a fifty-year bond, refinance America's debt, get it as low as possible. Do another build, set of build America bonds and repave, reharden the airports and and ports, redo the electrical grid. There's so much stuff we could do if we weren't stuck in a universe of partisan gridlock and just, you know, the inability to imagine what made America great in the old days seems to have everybody confounded. It's not let's make America great. It's what do we have to do to just go back to to normal government functions instead of paralysis. You know, it's interesting. I was asked one time, what should we do um, for, on financial literacy in this country? And I said, well, you should start with Congress. <laughs> How about this? Why don't we make them, they have their own health care plan. They have their own retirement plan. They have their own automatic salary increases. Why don't we take all that away and make Congress have Social Security, have Congress have Obamacare, and have Congress uh, get paid the federal minimum wage? We'll see how fast things improve across all those. If you don't like Obamacare, then fix it. You have your own Cadillac gold-plated health care plan and your own gold-plated retirement plan. No wonder Social Security is a mess and no wonder Medicaid is a mess. But that's me getting on my soapbox. In the last minute or so that we have, what should the average investor know about the Federal Reserve and how it impacts their portfolio? That if the Fed is expansive in monetary policy, and the real simple way to look at that is if interest rates are falling, the stock market tends to do very well. If interest rates are rising, the stock market tends to do less well. And it's very consistent over time. So my point is not that investors necessarily need to sell out or need to make any, uh, make any transactions based on Fed policy, but that you need to, in, in Larry David's terms, you need to curb your enthusiasm when the, when, the, when the Fed is raising rates, that typically that isn't a very good market environment. Bob, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate um, all the time. This is really uh, an interesting conversation. It's great to be here. Thank you. It, it's a little wonky. It's a little in the weeds. I know there is an audience that's going to eat this up, and a lot of people are going to go, Dr. Who? American College of what? How well-known is the American College of Finance? Not well enough. Uh, not well enough known, Barry. Um, one of the things that I we're very well known in the domestic life insurance industry. In oh, fact, really? That's the roots of the college. The college was founded in 1927. We are a nonprofit accredited degree granting institution. Mm -hmm. We have the same level of accreditation as a Yale, as a Columbia, Temple Foundation, right? It's uh, and. Um, but we largely have been known in the, in the domestic life insurance industry. So do you have a program where you train people to take whatever the life insurance uh, test is to become we a— We administer the CLU program, the Chartered mm -hmm. Life Underwriter program. We also administer the CHFC program, the Chartered Financial Consultant program, which is very similar to the CFP. In fact, there's a lot of overlap between the CFP. Uh -huh. We also do CFP education, by the way. We're one of the biggest providers of CFP education. We're fans 
fan, big fans of the CFP program. Mm-hmm. But our biggest program now is the Retirement Income Certified Professional Program. R-I-C-P. And what it is, Barry, is it's not the accumulation stage of retirement that the program... It's the drawdown. It's when do you take Social Security? It's longevity annuities. It's what can your spend down be? It's how is life insurance, long-term care insurance? It's all of that. And that is obviously becoming increasingly important because there's this, uh, you know... um, uh, basically perfect storm people are living longer people are have undersaved and we have extremely low fixed income interest rates in the environment now uh, it's a perfect storm for add, retirement income planning add in a giant baby boom demographic as the pig is almost through the python and at the same those three things plus what is it 65,000 people a day of retirement? Yeah, I think it's 10,000 a day that retire. 65,000. It was some crazy number. It's a huge, huge number Well, and here's the other thing that used to work. It used to work in our favor when we had pension plans. Uh-huh. You didn't have to plan for that extreme event that you would live to be 100 years old. Right. You only get one draw of the distribution in a defined, a defined contribution plan, right? You have to plan for that worst case slash best case scenario. That is that you live to be 100. You have to plan for that. Uh-huh. In the pension world, there was averaging. So that it's an inefficient way to do things. Defined contribution plans are much more inefficient than defined benefits are plans are societally. But of course, since we moved into this defined contribution world, we have to plan for those extreme events. And it's pretty clear most people are not either adequately planning or if they're planning, they're not adequately funding uh, their retirement plans. The other thing that I'm really excited about at college with respect to retirement income planning is we actually have our first cohort of PhD students that have entered their dissertation stage on retirement income planning. We're going to actually be minting PhDs in retirement income planning so that we hope that that helps inform the industry, the profession, wow. to become better at that at at retirement income planning. That, that is truly fascinating. So that that leads me to one of the questions we didn't get to before on the financial planning segment. What sort of changes do you see taking place for the financial planning industry over the next decade or so? I think that there are real um, there, there's real pressure on costs. A lot more compliance costs. Mm-hmm. And I think that you're seeing that fees are going to be going down dramatically. So I think that the, the financial planning industry is going to have to be a whole lot more efficient. And I also think they're going to have to really raise their game with the fiduciary standard, really become better informed, really have a mastery over a wider variety of products. You know, in the current advisory world, you have some what I would call one-trick ponies, uh-huh. somebody that has a very deep knowledge about a very small sleeve of of products. And I think what you're going to see in the future is you're going to see people that have to have a much broader um, uh, expertise across a much broader uh, array of products. Uh, again, my own practice, we, we've discovered that when you're doing corporate retirement planning, the skill set, the things you need to know about everything associated with 401k, plan sponsors, third-party administrators, custodians, we hired a full-time person to just do that because 
it's not the sort of thing that you could kind of do. Well, the bulk of my practice is this, but I dabble in. You can't. You yeah. have to have a person who is the expert in that, who can answer any questions, who is doing it for a while. And and if you look at the nonprofit version, we work with some foundations and some charities. So things have come up on the nonprofit side. The nonprofit equivalent of the 401k is the 403b. You would think it's the same rules, but it's totally different rules. And again, same situation. If you want to work in that space, you need a person who's dedicated to that. Uh, we, we ended up bringing in a team that only works with teachers and educators and other nonprofits because you can't, you can't do it on the side. You can't dabble. You can't be, well, the bulk of my clients are this, and I'm going to work with a handful of teachers. To understand all the permutations and wrinkles, it becomes a full-time thing. And so we're seeing more and more specialization. I wonder if you're seeing that at all. Absolutely. And, and you said the key word there is teams. You're seeing advisory teams where people work in teams and they have they each have their own expertise. And you're going to see much more of that in the future, I believe. So there are uh, all these resources you can get from different firms. We're essentially a vanguard dimensional fund. We work with other other asset managers, but the bulk of our holdings are Vanguard and Dimensional. And Dimensional, DFA very intelligently recognized that they were sitting at this fantastic nexus where all this information was passing, and they signed up uh, a person who only looks at firm analytics to try and figure out what can we figure out from all the data we see from firms? What are what are small firms and big firms doing right? What are they doing wrong? What are best practices? It's really fascinating that an asset manager developed that sort of practice. And we see similar stuff from Vanguard and similar stuff from, from other shops. But I find that fascinating that a person who you wouldn't imagine would have a focus on that just because of where they sit are capable of, of gleaning Great insights. And you know the history of DFA. They're academics. Uh, well, you have Eugene Fama yeah. and French. And uh, by the way, the Booth School in Chicago is yeah. named after David Booth, the founder sure. and CEO of Dimensional Funds. They're a fascinating shop. They're essentially a hybrid. You know, when I try and describe, well, I thought you guys do indexing. Well, this is indexing, but it's indexing based on this dimension. They were really, I hate to use the phrase smart beta, but they were really a factor shop before that became the the hip phrase of the day. And see, to me, they would be the ultimate in pracademics. Pracademics. So you're taking that. I hate that word, but I love the concept. See, keep saying it, Barry. Uh, pracademics. I, I actually, uh, <laughs> I, I I prefer uh, academics. What would you call the other way if you went the other way? But. Uh, Academics. Yeah, see, that pra didn't. Pra that, pra that doesn't work. Pracademics works. <laughs> yeah, pracademics works. It's um, but the idea of saying, hey, here's what the academic data shows. It's overwhelming. It's clear. Listen, the market may not be perfectly efficient, but the odds are that you're not going to beat the market on any consistent basis over any length of time. What what is it that we know? Well, we know quality beats junk over long periods of time. Unleveraged companies are going to do better than highly debt and inconsistent. And we know that there's a small cap premium. And we know that over long periods of time, um, uh, sometimes the U.S. does better than overseas, sometimes overseas. There are all these things that are out there that 
you cannot argue with. And don't forget reversion of the mean. Yesterday's winners are tomorrow's losers. Uh, that's Yesterday's exactly right. losers are tomorrow's winners. Uh, one of my colleagues likes to say, hey, if something in your portfolio isn't doing poorly, you're, you're doing it wrong. You should always be – if you're diversified, you're going to be sitting with something that's a dog for now, yep. and eventually uh, it, will, it will go from goat to hero while uh, one of your heroes will eventually go the other way. Um, how would you define the proper responsibilities and roles of the financial advisor? I think the financial advisor is a trusted advisor – who has who is an educator at least that's what i feel a really good financial advisor is is i want to educate if i'm a financial advisor i want to educate my clients i want my clients to feel good about what they're doing not simply because i say so but because i have been able to communicate with them why the path i am taking is a good path man you are preaching to the choir here let me, uh, before we get into our favorite questions in, in the last 20 minutes or so we have, let me ask one more question. We briefly talked about the suitability standard and FINRA. Uh, so FINRA is the SRO, is a self-regulating organization that covers the brokerage firms, all of the broker-dealers that aren't RIAs, that aren't covered by the SEC. Uh, they're kind of an unusual organization. What What are your thoughts on, on FINRA? Is FINRA really an SRO? Because isn't a self-regulatory organization, aren't, isn't the definition of that that you're from that industry? Yes. The lion's share of the board at FINRA is from outside of the industry. That's interesting. So it really isn't accountable to the government. It really isn't accountable to the industry, and it really isn't accountable to the public. It's really an odd situation. I I would think that FINRA would work better if it operated as a true SRO. So in other words, make the board all people from, the from industry. within the industry. If you're going to be a self-regulatory industry, the self part the is self what part's self-evident, I would think, right? So the, the people who are from outside the financial services sector who are on the board... Uh, why, why, and what is the downside other than they don't really know the industry? Well, that's the point. I think that's the bad. That's the bad part. If you're going to be a self-regulatory industry, I think you really need to know the industry. Now, I'm the last person, literally the last person, who would ever defend Finra. I have my long-standing views on them. Uh, I've never had an issue with them. I've never been in trouble with them. But I'm not a fan. Uh, <laughs> but to take the other side, they would say. Well, we want to bring diversity of thought. We want to avoid groupthink. We don't want to be insular. We want to bring people who are going to bring an outside perspective. And perhaps if we make it only industry people, we're going to miss some important things. What is it that we need to see or do or what have you? But I think it's industry people. I, I think to, to regulate the industry, you have to know the industry. I mean, it, it sounds like a crazy thing to say, but uh -huh. I really think that's the important aspect of this. And I, I believe that that FINRA, the SEC, there's a couple a couple things here. There's the ability to regulate and there's the will to regulate. Wow. And I don't think that between the SEC and FINRA that the the uh, our our legislators have given them either the ability or the will to regulate. And I think that's one of the reasons that really contributed to the financial crisis. They don't have the ability to regulate nor the will to regulate. And uh, by, by ability and will, I define as do you have the laws on the books and do you fund the organizations to be able to uh, to to uh, enact those laws, to carry out those laws. 
And I, I just, if you look at, for instance, the SEC's budget, uh-huh. it is a tiny, tiny fraction of really what it should and be. And it keeps getting sliced, or at least it exactly. had been until the financial crisis. Yeah. It's, well, uh, even after the crisis, though, even after the crisis, it was... Uh, don't they capture some of the fines they uh, issue, which creates this idiotic conflict where you're incentivizing industri- the regulator to fine industry in order to have a but budget? Then you have, but you have, then you have regulatory capture where you have people that are immediately going from the SEC to work in the industry and so forth. And there's a... I, I just... I, I think that if you really want to make a robust regulator, you've got to fund it. You've got to give them both the ability and the will. All right. So let's put aside all these in the in the weeds uh, stuff, which I think is really quite fascinating. Let's jump to some of my favorite questions. Um, so I didn't ask you your background. What did you do before you got involved with the financial services industry? Well, Barry, or was this right out of college? It was right out of college. Barry, I graduated in 1980, and go back and look at a yield curve in 1980. A little steep. Um, it, I wanted to find a job in the investment management business. Good luck in 1980. Right, 12.5%, yeah, triple tax-free. It was, <laughs> it was a crazy time. So um, I, uh, I, I went on and got a master's degree. I was basically delaying. And I, right. I found a really interesting, when I was... When I was pursuing my master's degree, I got an assistantship, and I thought, you know, this academic lifestyle is a pretty good lifestyle. Not, not bad if you get offered a tenure, like I said, the last of the landed gentry. So I decided to make that a career, and I, but but while I was getting my PhD, I started a money management company and um, on the side, on the side. Mm-hmm. And uh, what year was this? I and that was nineteen eighty six. So right before the crash of eighty seven. Okay. And I cut my teeth on the crash of 87. And nice. one of the things that I learned was that it's much easier to lose your own money than it is to lose other people's money. That I take. Oh, it, yeah. No, when, I, you, when you're when you sick to your stomach, at least if you have a, a, a well-developed sense of ethics, when you make an investment that goes down, you're not happy. When it's other people's yeah. money, you're like I've heard, I've seen people throw up in waste paper baskets. I remember early in my career waking up and just being sick to my stomach over, I can't believe I have clients in this and it's a disaster, or I can't believe this group of brokers have, has clients in this and it's a, a, a nightmare. Even if it's temporary, it's a horrific It is feeling. a horrific you feeling. Wanna, you want to just retch your guts up. A friend of mine, <laughs> Rob Frame, talks about his vomit indicator. He knows it's time to buy when he's getting ready to puke. When he feels that coming up, it's in very, and he's tracked it over decades. And he says, when I feel like throwing up because of how sick I am, as to what either I or the market have done to clients, usually it's a good time to go the other way. And I remember distinctly going in that Tuesday morning. I had a lot of cash to operate. I called all my clients on Monday night. You're talking the day after Black day Friday, after Bla- uh, day Black, after Monday, Black Monday, on that Tuesday. Uh, and after I went the 87 in, crash. And I went in and bought it open. And I don't know if you remember, but it opened the so market. Went- the market went down at all. Yeah, no, until they unplugged. Tim Metz wrote a great book called Black Monday. And if you read the story, I'm drawing a blank on his name, who used to be uh, the head of the New York Fed. This was early in the days of the Chicago futures feeds. And he went he went into the NYSE and he saw the futures feed. That's what was driving. That's at least the argue, story that you saw what the futures were. He had that unplugged. And... The big banks decided to reestablish credit with the specialists because they had cut them off or were about to. 
And he said, so you don't want to ever do business with the New York Stock Exchange? Because if you cut off credit today, you're done yeah. off the record, he says it to them. And uh, if, if you're interested in the academic history of that, read Tim Metz's Black Monday. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. So you were there on Tuesday. And I went in and, and uh, I remember uh, Tuesday morning was when I felt the worst. And how Tuesday did, afternoon, I felt a lot better. How long did it take before you got your confirms when you bought on Tuesday morning? Well, I mean, I was on the phone immediately. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I knew. And, you, you, uh, you got filled. I got, we got filled. Could, could have been one of the greatest buying opportunities yep. in, in decades, to say the least. Although March 09 is looking more and more like that these March days. March 09 looks pretty good. So uh, who were some of your early mentors? Well, yeah, again, not a mentor, but it, uh, I I looked up to Buffett um, mm-hmm. and uh, other influ- investors who influenced you. Yeah, um, you mentioned you mentioned Graham. Uh, uh, certainly, um, uh, Ben Graham. Certainly, Phil Fisher. Um, Phil Fisher being who? Um, he wrote Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. Oh, sure. And Buffett claims that he is fifteen percent Fisher and eighty five percent Graham. Is what he says his makeup That's is. That's interesting. Um, one of the curious things about being in Omaha, uh, Barry, I had a, a class that managed real money. These, mm-hmm. these are undergraduate students. At the time, it was the only class in the country where students for a year long managed real money. Um, and um, the class, uh, the, the, the uh, term ended right around the time of the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. And Mr. Buffett was gracious enough to come in and talk to the class a few Get times. Get out. That's, that's but great. I always would ask him, I said, who's going to be in town that I can co-opt into coming and talking to my class? And so wait, it's not enough that Warren Buffett is coming to speak to your class. While he's there, you're twisting his arm for, hey, give me some more names. Yeah, and he, uh, Bill Ruane from the Sequoia Fund came and talked to my class one year. Um, and he had a, re- a very interesting story to tell too. But let me tell you one little, one little Buffett quip that I think tells mm-hmm. you all you need to know about Mr. Buffett. I would take my students to the annual meeting. He always sent us tickets that I could take my whole class. There were 16 students. No kidding. Wow. We'd go to the annual meeting, and we would pose every year for a picture. He would come over and and pose for a picture. And one year I said, uh, Warren, I said, what if- Because you're on a first-name basis. Right. If you were teaching this class, what books would you use? And he said, let me think about that, Bob. That sounds like a Buffett response. Three days later, Barry. This is three days after the annual meeting. I get a letter in the mail, Bob, and it was handwritten, Bob, I would have the students read Security Analysis by Ben Graham, uh-huh. The Intelligent Investor, or Security Analysis by Graham and Dodd, uh, The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham, and Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits by Phil Fisher. Huh. But he remembered me, and it wasn't that he had somebody writing that down. He hand wrote it. He remembered that I'd asked that question, and I was the least important person that day to, to Mr. Buffett. It's That's the day of the annual meeting. But he remembered me, and I got it three days later. And I hope you have that, that letter Oh, somewhere. it's framed. No, no doubt about that. So you mentioned three books. Any other books worth uh, bringing up? Yeah, Margin of Safety. Mr. Buffett Seth also Klarman. said, Seth Klarman, he said- I have I, a PDF I, of that. Yeah, I asked him, I said, who's the next Warren Buffett? And he said, Seth Klarman. And so I looked, and Seth Klarman wrote Margin of Safety. It's now $2,000. I had my students, Barry, buy that book. Get out of here. So we, you can't find it now. We it's used that in class, mm-hmm. and we bought 16 copies, me and the students. <laughs> 
That and might be the best investment those kids ever made. 27% compounded annually. The, the actual value of the book from, since you purchased. From 1992 to present. That's, that's hilarious. And I had a student, I still keep in touch with some of these kids, and I had a student call me and say, I just got two grand out of that book. He that, says, I can buy the PDF. The, the PDF is on the internet. Yeah. It's free. You can pick it up for, for nothing. Uh, I would want to save the book, but that's just me. Um, all right, so- for better or worse, what has changed since you joined the industry? Boy, a lot's changed. There's more algorithmic trading, more high-frequency trading. And, you know, on balance, I think that's a really bad thing. They say that it helps liquidity, but... You I'm, know, I was, in, I was in your camp, and I have guys like... who Guests of the show, David Booth of DFA, Bill McNabb, CEO and chairman of Vanguard, both insist to me that HFT has made their costs lower. It doesn't feel that way to me, but that's what they've said. Yeah, it doesn't feel that way to me, too. Uh, you know, I said earlier, I think there's constant talking heads on TV encouraging people to uh, have investment activity is what I'd call it. I think we've gone to more trading and less investing. Um, you know, I think that people like my sister, who's a lay investor, uh -huh. think that there, you should have constant action. And when she calls me and says, "We, you know, I, we, you haven't suggested that I do anything," and I said, "Well, Nancy, I have you in Berkshire Hathaway." You're done. Just sit. I and said, and be "Just done. sit and be happy." My my colleague Josh Brown has a quote I love, and he says, "The solution to high frequency trading is low frequency trading. Yeah. So the less you trade, the less likely you are to do something." Really silly. I think we have much more informational availability to investors, and I think that's a good thing. As does find, everybody, yeah. though. The takeaway, the conversation with clients are, what about this? Well, who doesn't know that? Therefore, that's in the stock price. The way a piece of information is going to give you an, a investing advantage, if it's a unique analysis or a unique piece of data, assuming it doesn't get you sent to jail. So- that really eliminates a lot of the... But I think, Barry, it's more what you do with that information because mm -hmm. Warren Buffett looks at the same information I look at, and he does a lot more with it than I do. Mm -hmm. And the, But uh, what I always say is the great thing about investing is you don't have to have an original idea. You just have to be able to recognize a really good idea when it comes That's your right. way. So the my last two questions, my favorite questions... So if a millennial or someone just graduating college were to come to you and say, I'm interested in a career in finance, what sort of advice would you give them? My son is a millennial. My son is 21, and he has a different outlook than I did. And I, maybe, it's a, maybe it's our upbringings because um, he grew up in, a, in, a, in an environment where he didn't want for anything. Uh -huh. I grew up in a lower middle class environment. Um, I wanted to do well. My son wants to do good. I think that this profession, the financial services profession, can afford somebody the opportunity to do both. You can really do well in terms of financially well, but you can really do good. And I think that's very appealing to millennials. You know, if you put somebody on proper financial footings, footing, sound financial footing, that's life-changing. And I think that if you do that right and you, uh, you, know, you do a good job at that, you can put your head on the pillow at night and feel pretty good about what you do. And you can also live a pretty good life. To, to say the least. And it's how much of that wanting to do good is a function of the fact that he's 21 
And when you're young and idealistic and life hasn't kicked kick the hell out of you yet, you, you can look at the world that way. Well, I think I've gone the other way. I think I started wanting to do well and now have done well and want to do good. That seems to be a pretty traditional yeah. factor for people. Once you realize that all your material needs are met and how fortunate you are to be born in the United States, born in the century, and be in a career that pays you more than anyone has any right to expect in a given lifetime relative to the rest of the um, uh, world, you start to think, hey, I want to give some back and just recognize how appreciative I am of the opportunities that were afforded to me that might not have been afforded to everybody. You know, for instance, people may roll their eyes about somebody who sells insurance that, oh God, who would want to sell insurance? Well, my son saw an instance where his uncle, my brother-in-law, was tragically killed in a car accident. Mm -hmm. His family, they had life insurance on him. Uh, the, the, the agent basically delivered a check for $2 million to- So the house is paid for, the kid's college is paid for, exactly. retirement is set up. And although it's a terrible tragedy, at least it isn't a second tragedy when everybody is set back in their lives and can't achieve what they want to achieve. And, you know, he saw that, and I think that's shaping what he might want to do. So you could do well by doing good, right. in other words. Yeah. And our last question, I know they're going to kick us out of here any second. What is it that you know about investing that you wish you knew 30 years ago when you were just getting out of school, but perhaps didn't? 30 years ago? Well, I, I sure wish I would have seen the mortgage crisis coming. Um, you know, it's funny, Barry, how many people now claim to have saw that coming. It's really annoying to those of us who saw it coming. Yeah. To all these people who are making <laughs> that claim. It is. I, <laughs> I certainly didn't see that coming. You know, the thing that I see about investments is the, the, the complexity of investments is just crazy. I remember I had a student who went to work for Solomon Brothers, mm -hmm. and he was on the mortgage desk. And he called me and he said, I would like to ask you if you'd be interested in helping us um, do a little consulting in on the mortgage-backed desk. And he sent me everything that he had on mortgage-backed securities, which were nascent at the time. Right. And I said, I, I don't understand how anybody can <laughs> – I don't understand how anybody can value these things. Right. I have no idea because they're so complex. Well, great, um, we've we've hit our target. Thank it, you. It, it turned out that that was what it was, and I couldn't provide him any help. Well, long story short, I think I was right. Um, but I think Barry, that the theme that I would say is that I think that the investment world has gotten unnecessarily complex. Now, is it safe to say that that's a feature, not a bug? It's not an accident that it happens that way, but. There's oh, it's some not an element I, of design? I don't think it's an accident that it happens. I think that uh, the the iBanking uh, community is a pretty um, savvy, sophisticated, savvy, and very intelligent group. And uh, I think that uh, they can uh, uh, come up with a lot of different products, financial products, that, uh, it, it's it, that, that, are, that are very difficult to value. And I think that there's a thing out there that, that people are unwilling to say the words, I don't understand. And I think that's one of Mr. Buffett. That's one of the things I've learned from Mr. Buffett is that he stays away from investments that he doesn't understand. Famously stayed away from technologies in the late 90s. Everyone said he was a dinosaur. And then a year later, everything crashes on him. Right. 
Um, it's the idea of your circle of competence. It's so not how big your circle of competence is. It's that you stay within its perimeter. So what is that one thing you would that would have helped you in your career had you known it 30 years ago? Well, I think I did know it. And I think it's that I think that you stay within that circle of competence. And I think that if I could help people, it would have been that I would have hammered on that. Don't be ashamed to say that you don't understand something. Dr. Bob Johnson, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for being so generous with your time. If you've enjoyed this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes and you'll see the other, let's call it 90 or so uh podcast, radio broadcast conversations that we've been doing. I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs and Charlie Vollmer, my uh, producer and booker for the show, and Michael Batnick, uh, the head of research, who helps me put together all of these scintillating conversations. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.